you just keep interrogating what is the core of the person you're making the film about what's what's really at the center of this and if you just persist in asking that question you'll you'll find what the film is really about Hello, and welcome back to The Director's Cut, brought to you by the Directors Guild of America. In this episode, a behind-the-scenes portrait of Los Angeles Philharmonic conductor Gustavo Dudamel is unveiled in director Theodore Braun's documentary, Viva Maestro. Screened as part of the DGA's documentary series, the film follows Dudamel around the world as his international tours are disrupted by deadly protests across his native Venezuela, revealing how he responds to unexpected obstacles with stirring music-making. In addition to Viva Maestro, Mr. Braun's directorial filmography includes the documentaries Betting on Zero, Darfur Now, We're Here to Speak for Justice, an episode of the television documentary series Combat at Sea, and the scripted HBO short Practice Time. Following the documentary series screening of the film at the DGA Theater in Los Angeles, Mr. Braun spoke with director Andy Timoner about filming Viva Maestro. Listen on for their spoiler-filled conversation. So I think what we'll start with is how did you and Gustavo link up in the first place? What an incredible person to be able to spend time yeah, with. Yeah, I mean, yeah. it was an extraordinary five years we spent between starting this film and bringing it in front of audiences. Um, we were introduced by Howard Bragman, one of the producers of the film. Um, I had just finished making Betting on Zero, a feature doc about uh, alleged global economic crime being perpetrated by Herbalife and uh, about someone, Bill Ackman, and a Latina activist named Julie Contreras who were trying to expose that. And Howard uh, asked me if I thought Gustavo would make a good subject for a documentary. And having just left behind that subject, the film was about to premiere at Tribeca, and having previously made a feature doc about the Darfur crisis, which was exposing genocide, the, f- the prospect of making a documentary about a classic musician bringing something beautiful into the world was very appealing. <laughs> and, uh, and a chance to, to make a film which was initially going to be about the work of, of art, of, of how a conductor, you know, takes uh, an imagined performance inside his head, develops that with an orchestra and then shares it with an audience. I thought that would be a fascinating, wonderful aesthetic journey and a big escape from the problems of the world. <laughs> exactly. Right. Yeah. But what, what's, what is wonderful that I, I said at the, you know, in the introduction is that the film I think we go and see films about artists because we want to know more. We want to learn something that we haven't understood about this person. And I I expected to learn about conducting and I did learn some things. And I do want to ask you what you learned about conducting because it's a great line when he says, I know nothing about conducting, you know, but you learn so much about what's really driving this person and Elsie Stemma being this incredible program that, you know, I mean, there's all kinds of people trying to change the world in their way, but this is a, a vital human, like a, the mission is a human right. Yeah. You didn't know much about that going in. 
Tell me what he proposed to you That's that you told me started it well, and how it transformed. Because the title says he wouldn't know in three years this tour will be canceled. And I'm thinking, how did Ted know this tour would be? Like, I didn't know it was going to be. Right. No, no. I thought the film was going to be about his relationship with these orchestras. And like you were saying, I'd take an audience on a deep, you know, exploration of the art of conducting and and what that process is like and the drama of it. Mm-hmm. I, I, it wasn't going to be a how to conduct film at all, but it was going to be the drama of making art. And I, in the process of talking with him about, and his team about why that would be something worthwhile for him to engage in, I said, the thing that a feature doc can do for you, because he's already renowned, is it can it can make you not just recognized, but known and understood because the challenges that you'll be exposed to during the course of making a film will reveal your values. Mm. And in that process, establish a kind of empathetic identification between you and the audience that will really deepen their understanding of what's important to you and deepen their attachment to you. That's amazing, considering you had no idea what was about to happen and that this was a man who had dodged politics all his life. And that that challenge and those particular set of obstacles would actually test his values to their deepest core. Yeah. Yeah. And he did. He stood up. And we uh, had, I mean, we were flabbergasted when that happened. So tell yeah. So, okay. So you go down to Venezuela. Yeah. Oh, anyway, he said, why don't you come to Venezuela? Mm -hmm. We're this orchestra that he'd grown up with, you know, he said, we're, we're rehearsing the nine Beethoven symphonies in preparation for a three city tour of Europe. You're welcome you know, you can film however you want to film and then come with us to Europe. And I was like, perfect, perfect. Because the moment I started thinking about the film, I was, how are we going to get us, get an audience, a big audience, uh, into the head of a conductor, which is a very strange place to be. I mean, this guy is looking at, you know, notes on a page that most people can't comprehend. He's not even looking at notes. He's got it memorized, but you know, a general (laughs) conductor is doing that. And then fashioning from that an interpretation that lives up here that he then shares non-verbally by and large, most, most conducting is non-verbal with, with an orchestra together. There's a whole lot of communication going back and forth. And then that gets to an audience. The model that I had in my mind was Shakespeare in love, which, Mm. which, puts us in the shoes of the greatest playwright in the English language who's on a fool's errand writing a play he thinks is Romeo and Ethel the pirate's daughter. <laughs> we're going, you idiot, it's Romeo and Juliet. But we're, we're there inside him and anticipating what he's going to be doing. And I thought, if you can do the same thing for Dudamel as a conductor to establish that kind of relationship with an audience, it'd be great. And Beethoven was the perfect, perfect music for him to doing because the first few bars of Beethoven's Fifth, everybody knows. And you know, the melody of the last moon of Beethoven's ninth, everybody knows. So I figured I could, I'd be in safe ground as a director uh, because the audience would be oriented. And then we could start exploring and moving them inside what was happening with Gustavo without getting too wrapped up in the technicalities of the music. You just said you didn't want it to be about a conduct, like how to conduct. And I understand that. But at the same time, what a fascinating subject to have. Just, oh, yeah. you know, El Sistema aside and all the conflict that happens in the film. What is it to conduct? Like, he, I love when he says that his maestro, Jose Abreu, Abreu? Abreu. Abreu. Yeah. Holds his shoulders. He has said he has to have yeah. his arms. Yeah, you, you have know, to have your arms up and out so you can embrace the embrace complete the entire audience. Yeah. Just even that was such a fascinating thing to learn. But what did you learn about conducting from this incredible man? Well, one thing, and it, it's it's included in the 
in the opening of the very opening of the film is that if you're really good, you're communicating emotion to an orchestra in a clear enough way that that can be transmitted to the audience. And apart from all the technicalities of marking time, that mission is central. And that, I mean, I, I played, I, I nearly made orchestra music, orchestral music in my life. I was a bassoon player as a kid before I veered off into cinema. And so I had a lot of experience sitting in orchestras with conductors and playing a lot of that same repertoire. So I, I thought I kind of knew what was going on and I, I did that helped me get oriented, but I didn't have the depth of understanding of what made an exceptional conductor, an exceptional conductor. And that I think is central to him and to the, to the really great ones. The other thing that I learned, um, is that, as I mentioned, conductors don't actually talk a lot. Almost all of their communication is nonverbal. It's physical. It's with eye contact. It's the emotion that they're able to generate with their bodies. But when Gustavo does talk, he has this incredible gift for analogy. I mean, you know, there's this, <laughs> the, 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 the loveliest one is, you know, it's, it's got a sparkle, more like champagne, less like moonshine. There was one we left out. He, he, he was rehearsing Beethoven's third w with them. And I, I want to tell you about the rehearsals because that was yeah, an amazing yeah. part We're of We're going to talk about yeah. what it was to shoot the music yeah. for sure. Um, this didn't make it into the film, but he was rehearsing the opening of Beethoven's third, which is very dynamic and driving. And um, he, he set the baton down and he said, guys, it sounds like hospital food. <laughs> do, do you need any more motivation to, to, to give a little, a little? So he has this gift for analogy. And I learned that that was part of his training, that one of the things that Abreu understood is that to motivate people and to unlock an artistic community effectively, you have to reach beyond the technicalities to something that's visceral and alive. And for directors, you understand this implicitly. I mean, it's what we have to do all the time. But they they train that. They mm -hmm. work on on analogy. Well, I think equally your film is about what it is to pass wisdom along and what it is to 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 receive a gift and give a gift and and that that cycle being so important in in Gustavo's life in in Jose's life in and so yeah tell me about discovering his maestro like was that in meeting number 1 was that when you got to Venezuela and you learned about El Sistema and then your own who's your maestro you must have been thinking about this a lot during it because it's so much about that yeah you've asked a lot of questions wow let me let me start let me let me well, let me, let me sort the of same. unpack them they are the same but they have a lot of different branches. Um, I knew about Abreu before I met Gustavo and before we sat down oh, to talk wow. because he was such a influential figure in Dudamel's life that doing the least bit of homework on him, you, you, you had to understand. And one of the first things I asked Gustavo was, could we film him with Abreu when we got there? And by that point, Abreu was too ill and Gustavo said, no, no, he, he's not going to be, um, he's at a stage in life where he doesn't want to be filmed. So that cinematic door was closed to us. Um, I, I tapped at it a couple times when we were down in Caracas just to make sure, but it was, it was pretty well locked shut. So we really didn't return to Abreu um, as a subject until after he'd passed away and Gustavo couldn't go back to the funeral. And it, it, it wasn't until we were in that, the car that day we were coming back from an event in Inglewood. They'd opened a new Geary center for the youth orchestra of Los Angeles there. 
that I had a chance to ask him about Abreu and not being able to go. And that interview and his response where he admitted that it was something he'd regret for the rest of his life, I thought, okay, this, you know, when you have a moment like that in a doc that um, is just supercharged emotionally that, that we're going to, we're going to be able to, to work with this. But finally figuring out what, what place that held in the film didn't come until very, very late. Um, you know, we didn't feel, we didn't think the film was going to be a, about the disruption the crisis in Venezuela would have on his, on his, you know, his Dreams musical life. Mission. Yeah. yeah. So we're, we kept like, what's this film about? And for the longest time we thought it was going to be about getting back together with the Bolivars. And, you know, even, even the big last concert we shot in Santiago, we, we were conscious of that musical moment being important, but a huge amount of what we were shooting was him you know, we're trying to shoot him meeting with the Bolivars, trying to figure out, you know, how he's going to keep working with them. And, and it was only when we started to edit and really, as you know, try, what's the core of this about, um, that we realized it was really finally at the end of the day about him and Abreu and about mm. transmitting what he had acquired from Abreu through to the next generation musicians. And that, that, so it, it as is often the case, it was in the editing that we found that to be the core. And then we were able to retrieve archival material to bring Abreu live as a, as a cinematic presence. Yeah. He comes in really early in the film and, and Dudamel says, he showed me the possibilities of what I can do. So who showed you that back to part two of my question? Well, um, I, I grew up in, in Vermont in a small town, more cows than people, literally more cows than people. But it was close to the University of Vermont, so there was a kind of cultural life not too far away. And um, in the fifth grade, this, you know, energized woman named Jane Brown started an after-school music program and asked people what they wanted to play. I mean, this is a small school. There were 60 people in my class, K through 8, 30 boys, 30 girls. And um, I had, we had, we had lived outside Philadelphia when I was really little, and I liked the oboe because my mom had taken me to hear the Philadelphia Orchestra. So I said, the oboe. And um, she knew enough to teach me a little bit. And I liked it. And she said, you should get a good teacher. And she found me one. And this guy, his name is Neil Boyer, um, used to drive up, drive up. I think it was, he'd drive up from New York and teach a group of students in Vermont and then drive back to New York. At the time, I didn't know it. He was also an alcoholic. And, uh, he drove sports cars and, and he, he wore flamboyant clothes. He was a straight guy, but he would arrive in fur coats with patent leather shoes. He, he was this larger-than-life guy in the middle of a cow field. And I was like, my God, you know? And he energized me, and he really opened the door to an artistic life. I didn't know that that's what was going on. But I got really energized, and um, well, what's interesting too is that you're also a teacher. Well, you know, you get marked in your life, especially early on, by teaching, and it it has a it has an effect on you, and it's it becomes, as you could see with Gustavo, something you you want to pass on in some way or another. I just kept reflecting on that when I was watching it. I was like, I wonder what Ted teaches, and and then it turns out it's screenwriting. <laughs> so yes. I, I wonder how that impacted. The, the structure of this or how that interplays with your documentary Well, it's kind of just who I am, you know, it's, it's three acts. You're well, just one, two, three. 
Just kidding. It's I'm not just kidding. that simple. I, <laughs> <laughs> no, it just, I mean, it, at, at this stage, it's not so different from the way you think as a director. You, you see things in dramatic terms, you know. You see things as about human beings in conflict in pursuit of objectives. And then that kernel takes, you know, as many forms as there is life out there on the planet and you try to attend to it and give it shape in ways that have meaning. So as far as, as far as my life as a, a documentary director, I'm, I'm thinking as a, as a writer, as a dramatist, when I encounter someone or encounter a subject and I'm, how is this going to, how is it going to, ha- how is this going to land with an audience? What, what are the potentials for shaping it? Where is the dramatic kernel of it? Then you start shooting and it's, always what's the story of the day what's the story of this week at this location how does that relate to the story that we're telling and it's you know it's like screenwriting only really athletic because yeah. <laughs> you know it's changing all the time yeah, it's like sport fishing they're, yeah exactly <laughs> they're like live ammo it's real yeah. human beings out there so you're like whoa so yeah especially when you're doing something like this where it's unfolding you know um you're following gustavo for how many years well, the core of it was was pretty much two two and a half years. We were we were we started filming in February of 2017. Um, we f- we we filmed the the concert in Santiago, which which wasn't the ending we were looking for, but we know okay, we've got an ending. And then we kept waiting for him to go back to Venezuela. And while we were waiting, we we filmed a number of the interviews with him in LA that and oh, and I love seeing him, him conduct over Zoom. Yeah. That was incredible. Isn't that, I mean, so yeah. many elements of this film seem to presage what we've lived through. I mean, that, yeah. that Zoom rehearsal, which was FaceTime, we was just like, this is from a different, you know, what is this going on? We couldn't believe we were doing now this. Now you're like, that's how you do that's it. It's completely normalized. <laughs> it's completely normalized. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So I, I want to talk to you about how you filmed the shows. Um, like how did you, you know, what were your limitations? What were the challenges? I know from filming live performance, there's always, especially when it's a known person yeah. and or a big, big, huge outfit like the LA Phil, it's, it's a big deal. Like, you, well, you know, we, what, how'd you do it? So this is the first time I'd, this is the first time I'd really worked with more than one camera at a given occasion. And um, that was part of what attracted me to it. Cause I knew you can't film classical music and not, you know, not be working with more than one camera. So the question was sort of how many and where. And we had a couple of things guiding us. One was I, I was really intent on getting audiences inside Gustavo's shoes so that we weren't sort of outside watching a presentation of music. We were with him trying to participate in this interpretation and bringing this interpretation of life. So that was a, a kind of guiding principle. And the other was a thing we wanted to avoid, which um, was most televised classical music performances are really incredibly good at illustrating what's happening in the music. In other words, they've got cameras all over the place. They've got an incredibly, incredibly smart, incredibly skilled director who is watching the score and, you know, readying the team and cut to camera this, cut to camera that. But you're never inside. And so we wanted to flip that around and get inside. So we were fortunate to start in Caracas and Gustavo said, you can put the cameras wherever you want as long as you don't interfere with people's physical movement or make it hard for them to see me for more than a fraction of a second. So we had carte blanche. And because we were down there while they were rehearsing all nine symphonies and we were only focused on two movements, the first of the fifth and last of the ninth, 
we used a lot of the rest of the rehearsals to experiment and practice and figure out what's going to work. How do we, how do we make this happen? And how do we give the cinematographers the freedom to be their own artists and respond to what's happening? And at the same time, get the dynamic of the music and what was going on. And, um, you know, we knew we wanted to have a, a handheld camera in the area between Gustavo and orchestra to get that conversation and that dynamic. And Buddy Squires, who who is our principal DP and who has shot a ton for Ken Burns and is a just a really gifted uh, verite cinematographer, he, he, we talked a lot about where he would be and how that would work. And then it was, where else do we need to be? Um, we knew he was going to be focused on the Gustavo part of the conversation, so we needed another camera on the outside looking at the musicians to get their half. And while we were f- talking about that, someone mentioned the last waltz and um, how they had that that dolly back and forth across the lip of the stage. And we thought, well, maybe we could try that. And so we got this incredible Venezuelan crew and we had, you know, 70 feet of dolly track on the lip mm-hmm. of the stage and this huge, you know, bazooka of a lens that could pick out fingers, but pull back and get the whole thing. So, so that, and then we added one camera at the back of the hall and one at the back of the stage on Gustavo so that we always had Gustavo. So that, that's how we worked out the basic coverage. And then it was getting the cinematographers used to not trying to chase the tune all over, but like follow where, who's playing the music. I said, but look, Beethoven, by the time you get to where the tune is, he will have put it someplace else. So you'll be late. <laughs> and the other thing was that they default because Gustavo is so charismatic, they default to just filming Gustavo. So we had four cameras filming Gustavo. (laughs) Yes. So, but it was, it was, it was, I said like, trust, trust your sense of the emotional dynamic happening between the players and Gustavo and try to bring that alive. And eventually we found a rhythm for that. And that was, that was what we stayed with. And then with each city, we tried to use a little different, uh, we took a different approach. Um, In, in Hamburg, we had a, I can't remember. Steadicam? Steadicam. Thank you. Yeah. A steady camera. Wow, good guess. Good. And then in, um, in Santiago, we, we, we knew we were filming Tchaikovsky and we knew it was Tchaikovsky's super sweeping, big emotional gestures. So we got a crane to, mm. to use there. So with each place and each piece of music, we tried to find a different a kind of uh, That's nice. approach. I love in the credits. I, I mean, and we should talk about the graphics. Graphics are fantastic. And the credits really show the breadth of where you went. And um, it feels like you were really following this live wire. And we think of him as our hometown guy, yeah. but he's on the move. Gustavo's a I busy mean, guy. Yeah. yeah he's a busy guy. So how does his schedule break down? It's like he's here for a season. Like, wh- yeah. How did he, you, and when did you um, get the call? Like, are you like, you had it booked or you were like out the door well, at the it, last it, minute? It, because of the disruptions of Venezuela, we were adapting and trying to chase what he was doing in response to that. So we, we found out in the, the, well, let me go back to the graphics or do you want to do the graphics now or do the tours now? Whatever you want. Because right, I'll graphics, remember the next part. Okay. So, um, the graphics were interesting because we had brought this wonderful team on MK12 um, early. Normally graphics come in late and I always find that very frustrating because you're running out of money and it becomes problem solving rather than really bringing something creative to the table. And these guys had done wonderful work on a film called Particle Fever that Walter Merch had edited that looks at 
the the big uh, nuclear collider in in Europe, and um, and they had taken this abstraction, uh, particle physics, and something that's practically invisible, and made it visual and dramatic and fun to watch. And I thought they would be great to work with. So I said, why don't you come in early? They love that idea. And we were developing a whole bunch of ideas around what a conductor does. Mm -hmm. And then the project became about how does a conductor respond to the problems of the world? And we had a different set of issues. And, um, and Gustavo had been reluctant to talk with us about how he'd responded to the situation in Venezuela. He, he's, he's walking a knife edge there still. Mm -hmm. And so figuring out what exactly we could do to bring to life that period of the hundred days or so when he moved from being apolitical to speaking out and the terrible consequences of it became a big storytelling problem. And so <laughs> despite my best efforts, we were again nearing the end of the film with a problem to solve. And we turned to the graphics team and, um, Fortunately, we had a fairly rich vocabulary that we'd already developed using lines in certain ways. And, and we developed a, we, we, we wanted to, we wanted to illustrate the, the situation in Venezuela, but we didn't want to do it in these sort of blanket ways. We wanted to suggest the depth and the multiplicity of the problems and the scope of how it was affecting the people there. So we came up with these stills that were sort of spaced out into deep space so that you got a sense of volume without being lost. And, and they liked this idea of using a wiping thing that's sort of like the haptics of swiping across a cell phone. Yeah, it was very, it was very like watching almost an, how Apple does it, right? Or like how any slide thing, but I've right. never seen it applied to a film. Yeah. It was so perfect yeah. to be able to experience when we had to step out and look at either the death of Maestro or the problems in Venezuela or the tour being canceled yep. to really just shorthand get through that segment yep. uh, incredibly. But it's beautiful the way it's established from moment one Yeah, and well, pays off in the end. You know, yeah. it's very we, we, sharp. Yeah, yeah. Thank you. Yeah. I mean, we worked, we had a, we had a kind of vocabulary that we had at the beginning and then we thought, well, how can we deal with Venezuela that way too? And that, that was a big, that was a big sort of essential part of it. That and and going in through Gustavo, when we first start entering those um, those those sort of uh, still photographs of, of of Caracas, we're with him looking at his phone. So that kind of gave us a subjective a cue in. to go in there. Right. Um, the other thing was that we tried at one point we we tried getting a crew, the crew that we had worked with in Caracas, to film some of the the protests and the clashes. And the footage, it was kind of disembodied. It wasn't effective because there was no one that we were involved with mm -hmm. that was in it. And so we thought, well, let's not try to pretend we're there. We'll, we'll deal with Caracas in a world of stills, but do it in a way that has vitality. I mean, in a way, I feel like the film is also about an exodus, right? An exodus of the musicians of Venezuela who are trying to preserve their nationality and their you know pride and their gift out in the world. They can't do it anymore in Venezuela. And that woman who you find, I mean, I don't know what brought you to Berlin. And I suppose it was, it was Beethoven. I don't know. Um, you know, what brought us to Berlin was Gustavo and the exiled musicians. We knew he had a date with the Berlin Philharmonic, but we also knew that oh, yeah. Natalie and Alejandro, Alejandro and a couple right. of others had been exiled there. That was it. And it was we were still 
we thought we were making a film about his reunion with these musicians. And we thought, oh, here, finally we can get him together again with these, these folks. Um, you picked up some incredible testimony there. Yeah. Yeah. The vaccine did. story. Yep. I mean, it, it really brought the gravity of what it is to raise a family in a country that is that dysfunctional yeah. um, and war-torn. Yeah. Their, their stories were really heart-wrenching. In fact, the way she breaks down. Yeah. Oh my in God. fact, we we sort of pulled it back a little bit from the the absolute, you know. Why? Um, a couple of reasons. One was they, the subjects, particularly Natalie, did not want to appear. She didn't have it together. She really she and I and I you know, it's complicated with subjects. You, you, you have a perspective on how they'll be perceived that they don't because you made a film before. And yet at the same time you have a, at least I feel I have in, in this instance, a particular moral obligation to listen to their concerns and try to address them. But she really did not want to appear weepy. She, I, she called me and actually talked about it after the interview. And, and so, and you changed the edit a little, Oh, oh well, before just the in, edit. before we even got, okay. got into too deep in it. So, okay, let's, and let's see if we can hit the emotional note that we're after, but in a way that preserves her sense of self and dignity. What I liked about the way you portrayed her was she really seemed to have it together and you've established that very clearly and cleanly. And then she lost it. And that's really how I think a lot of us carry our, our, our grief, you know? Absolutely. And I think that and she that, was excited to see Gustavo. So there's, you know, there's that. Yeah. And that she's excited to tell him that she's studying and she's carrying on, but the pain she carries is like really came out in the end. Yeah. And we focused that. And there, there was a lot of things that she was grieving at that moment, but we focused it on Abreu and Abreu's death. And that was, like I said, that was the thematic focus that we found deep into the film. And so hanging what we knew was an important articulation and expression of grief that audiences could see and feel those tears that she fights hanging it on a Brayu and his loss provided us with the, with a way that I think maintains the dignity that she's after. And that I wanted to honor. And at the same time, lets us feel as an audience, the, the tears and the grief that are essential to propel us into the film. Cause Gustavo's not going to cry. Gustavo's just going to say, I'll regret this for the rest of my life, which is enough. So, and why is Gustavo not going to cry? Because he's Gustavo. He's just not going to. He no. He. I mean, like I knew he's that. Not emotionally. I, like that. Well, he, right. he's got not outwardly. Gustavo's Gustavo's range of emotion as a conductor is as rich as any human being on the planet. I, I think he can articulate and express emotion of a sort that few people can even comprehend. It's like, mm. it's like having a bandwidth past the normal range of human expression. But on a day-to-day basis, his life as it's lived is, is I think, at least as he shares it with the public and with me, is narrower. Yeah, so. I, I really loved the scene backstage with him as well when, you, when, you, when we meet his wife, who we've kind of seen before, but she comes back. And when that composer, Don Zone, Marquez, the composer of Dunzo number two. Yeah, yeah. Who writes number two, or two is what Gustavo's trained on, and number yeah. nine is dedicated to him. Yeah. So he's obviously like he's a maestro in and of himself and invites him to Mexico. And what Gustavo does with that, to me, it shows everything about him. Like yeah. it's really 
a very important part of, of his portrait. Well, that, yeah, that is ultimately, that's, that's where his response to being shut out of Venezuela, that's where that really becomes articulate. And it's funny because when we went to Mexico, we didn't, we weren't aware of that. I mean, we knew what, we knew he was playing in this concert for the kids, but you know, I'm like, we've got enough music Let's focus on <laughs> let's focus on his reunion with the Bolivars because we thought that's what the film was going to be about. It was about him. It was about his relationship with this orchestra. He'd just been separated from them. They were scattering all over the world. We thought the drama is going to be about him getting them back together. That's the dramatic question. Turned out, not the dramatic question of the film, but that was you know you you make mistakes when you're when you're making a film. You and, you, you did it though. You got someone in that in that bus with the kids. You know, yeah. no. Um, we, well, what what ended up happening was he he never met with those uh, those Bolivars, or when he did, he's like, "This is too sensitive for you to film," and we were pissed, you know, because that's what we'd come there for. We didn't. We brought we brought a, the, a skeletal crew. We were not prepared to film music. It was it was. We didn't have an assistant cameraman. It was, it was camera, sound, me. Do you producer. operate? No, I don't. Ah. I, I did in graduate school. I loved it, but I rather have people that are really good at their jobs than me fumbling yeah. around. So, so yeah. So we had a skeleton crew, and and the producer kept saying, you know, we should do something. You know, we should do something. Film something. It's like, let's, <laughs> all right. Well, let's film. There are all these rehearsals during the day. Let's film the rehearsals. You know. Well, well who are we going to follow? The, you know, they're they're not they're not meeting with Gustavo. Or not, you know. Well. Let's find some kids. To me, and it's just, you know, that became, that I mean, became to me, that's the, the portrait you made. It's, yeah. it's like, here's this man who's paid gazillions of dollars to conduct our orchestra here in fancy LA. And he is really not forgetting where he came from. And he is determined to find a solution to get these kids playing and to continue El Sistema and to carry what his maestro's started. And yep. to me, that's just a beautiful story. Yep. And that know? is the story. That's the story that we yeah. found. Yep. Yeah. And I, and I, and I wonder if you don't shoot, do you speak Spanish? No, I spoke two of the three languages of the film, English and music. I don't speak Spanish. <laughs> that's a good answer. <laughs> I, uh, I need to, this is the third film that I've made that has a main character who's a Spanish speaker. I think God's trying to tell me something. So how'd you do it? Like, did you just work, work with a, a person what, who, well, I, I have an interpreter who was right, right beside me. Okay. Um, and they become like a sort of second skin. Um, what did he think of the film? Like, when did you show it to him and what did, and what was that conversation? So like? I, I showed the film, I've showed the film to him a couple of times. This is the first time I've ever showed, uh, believe it or not, the first time I ever showed a doc to a subject, before it premiered. Wow. How'd you get away with that? I have a very good trusty relationship with the subjects. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Okay. yeah. I mean, in this case, he, he, it was important to him to see the film beforehand. And so we of screened course. it for him in the fall of 2019. And that cut had material in it that, that we were not aware um, when we, put it together was going to cause problems in Venezuela. He already has problems in Venezuela, but yeah, he's walking a knife edge all the time. So. Right. Can he go there at all? He hasn't been back since the rehearsals that we filmed in 2017. <sighs> wow. That's terrible. Cause he's a lot of family there. Parents are now in um, Spain. Um, but yeah. What, what I find really tragic is just 
why they would stop it, stop everything for all the kids just because they're angry with him. Well, you know? they canceled the tours, um, yeah. but they kept the program going. And one of the okay. remarkable things about the program is that when we started filming, there were 800,000 Venezuelan youth in El Sistema. Wow. When we released the film um, in, uh, in April this year, it reached a million. Okay. So during the pandemic and during the, the absolute nadir of their inflation crisis, which was at 800% per annum at one point, currency became utterly, utterly worthless. It was, they, they, they were on, making, no, they were making like purses out of folded up bills that were worth more than the bills. It was like the Weimar Republic times 10. Um, so is that despite all of that, <laughs> I, don't, I don't think we're headed there, <laughs> Maybe, but despite all of that, um, they, they grew, um, in part because of Gustavo's administrative counterpart, Eduardo Mendez, Gustavo's the musical director, Eduardo's the executive director. He's really brilliant and he's been able to, to keep the thing going. So they've grown during that time. Does he regret having spoken out? Do you, do you think, I mean, it's, it's caused him a lot of grief on a lot of limitations with the kids he serves. I think it's complicated. Um, you know, I think, I think the closest to him saying something like that is when in the film he says that, you know, not being able able to go back to Abreu's funeral is something he'll regret the rest of his life. So, Mm. but on the other hand, I think, you know, he stands by to this day, the op-ed that he wrote and the public statements that he made on Facebook, uh, leading up to, the tour's cancellations. But as the film makes clear, he was not expecting the second set of tours to be canceled or the consequences that came up. Asia, yeah, he told his manager everything was under control. I wonder why he thought that. I wonder why he was confident about that. I think he, you know, he's lived his whole life as a Venezuelan citizen. He's led that organization um, since Abreu handed it over to him and Eduardo. I think he had reason to feel he knew what he was dealing with. Um, so uh, what was your greatest sort of learning moment in the film? Like what would you advise people if they were, okay, you're going to make a portrait of an artist. You're going to make a film about an artist. Hmm. Um, Do you want me to ask an easier one? No, 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 okay. no, no. Um, I think, um, y- you know, the, the, the greatest learning moments come at the, the biggest challenges it's when your back is up against the wall and you know, you really have no, no way out. Um, and, um, you know, in this case it was, you know, it was in the editing room as it so often is. And, uh, I didn't finish up, but Gustavo had these, you know, he reactions to that cut about things that were going to be problematic in Venezuela and and we r- really had to pivot. I mean, it was a. We thought we were done. Um, and so, uh, in in trying to navigate that very real set of concerns, you know, um, because I think we we had an obligation to protect those people. Um, we had to really look at what the film was fundamentally about, and that led us ultimately to the you know to what's on the screen now, which is about him and his relationship with his, his mentor. And I, um, and about, you know, about what we owe the people we learn from and to the people that will learn from us. And I think, you know, I, I suppose the thing that I took away from that is you just keep 
it's not news, but you just keep interrogating what is the core of the person you're making the film about? What's, what's really at the center of this? And, you know, if you, if you just persist in asking that question, you'll, you'll, you'll find what the film is really about. So. Yeah, it's really, um, it, it at least left me with the feeling that having meaning in our work, you know, and having it being for more than, you know, it could be just that he does the orchestra here and every, you know, leads it and, and that's, he does wonderful work, you know, but what drives him to be eight, to have that, that many dependents, those (laughs) tens of thousands. It's not Gustavo only. Yeah. Yeah. Is, makes his life so meaningful, you know, and it really makes, makes me as an artist go, let me make sure I always keep that alive, you know? Um, So, and and as a person. And know it and know it. I mean, I think, you know, one of the things looking back on this, which was, you know, we we finished shooting, the last interview with Gustavo was on February 24th of 2020. So it was like two weeks before the pandemic curtain fell. We were already deep into post. We already had this cut that I mentioned. So we were able to continue working during that really harrowing period. But But I think as we finished the film, there are a lot of questions and concerns. And it, it sort of played out during the course of the, you know, the the political period in the United States while we were making the film. I, I started off making this film to get away from the problems of the world and to just immerse yeah. myself in, in art. And I think, I think all of us have, have in one way or another been reminded over the course of the last four or five years that, that, that aesthetics and morality and politics are inextricably connected and that, you know, we don't need to be making films that are overtly political, but we need to be mindful of of their place in the world and um, and and recognize that we're we're bringing something to the world in our art. And Gustavo, I think, does that so beautifully in the film. And uh, and I, that's something I sort of witnessed and and participated in. That that's something I'll take away for sure as something I learned. Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, I think, I, I think I'll, I'll never see him the same again. And I think based upon the reaction of the audience, everybody feels that way, you know? Um, yeah, absolutely. Um, before we have to wrap up, I want to make sure that anyone, any questions I might not have asked that, uh, yes. I'm so glad I get to talk about that. Cause that was, uh, that was a real joy in, in making the film and in, in putting it together. Um, Ron Bartlett's responsible for the mix. Um, and, uh, John Seca and Teresa Rodka were our principal sound recordists. Um, and uh, w- with the sound, as with what I was describing with the, with the, the filming of those rehearsals and, and concerts, we thought a lot about how we were going to get audiences inside Gustavo's shoes and hearing as he was hearing in a subjective way. And we made a discovery in one of the first rehearsals that we were filming that um, the, the camera mic, which is mounted on a lot of dock cameras um, as a kind of parachute in case the cameraman gets separated from the sound recordist and you've got to have something, right? The camera mic, and in, in our case, it was a very hyper-directional mic, um, which is usually terrible for dialogue because everything falls off that's not right at the microphone, gave us an incredible effect when it was panning across an orchestra. In other words, when Buddy would 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 go from the firsts to the cellos to the violas to the seconds we were getting this incredible perspective shift that we heard that in the first set of dailies and was like wow what if we could you know 
bring that into post, that would help really get audiences hearing what Gustavo's hearing. And so from that point on, we started, first of all, we, we put a camera mic on every single camera. So we were always getting that as an option. And then we just started thinking that way as we approached the rehearsals and the, the concert. So we would have a mix of recording setups. We'd have a stereo pair in the hall, sometimes at different places the hall, and always individual mics on the cameras getting perspective shifts. And um, a good friend of mine, our sound editor, sound designer, um, Ed Callahan, kept saying, you should do this in Atmos, you should do this in Atmos, you should do this in Atmos. We're like, documentary in Atmos, come on, it's far-fetched. And then we proposed this to participant, our principal financier, and Diane Wireman, may she rest in peace. Um, the wonderful Diane Wireman said, no, we've done films in Atmos. This is the perfect film to do it. We can, we'll, we'll support that. And so we started to think about how we would take advantage of those tools in, in the mixing studio. And um, we, you know, it's a documentary. We didn't have the same audio setup from place to place, but we, we were often afforded incredible range. Uh, the, the, the performances in, in Hamburg were also being broadcast by the North German radio, and they had their full array. I mean, we had 48 tracks of stems to choose from. And um, then in instances like Mexico City, we had one stereo mic, you know. So, but Ron was very adroit at disguising things that, um, that, you know, that weren't ideally recorded and then making the most of the ones that were. And, um, and as with the rehearsals of the Beethoven symphonies when we were filming in Caracas, we took a week... Uh, while we were still editing the picture to do a couple of temp test mixes in Atmos just to see what worked and what was effective so that Kate Amend, our wonderful editor, and I could make some choices that would maximize the Atmos effect when it was necessary. And like a lot of experimentation, we got drunk on Atmos. <laughs> you know, we had all these wild perspective shifts and I was like, and it was like, okay, this is not an amusement park ride. <laughs> let's, let's dial it back a little. And, you know, Ron, Ron is a, just a great artist and he was able to, you know, to, we, we were able to find just really wonderfully subtle ways where you're kind of being got, your ears are being guided to perceive things as Gustavo's perceiving them. And that was, that was really fun. And, um, uh, you know, as a former classical musician, it was just a joy. This film, if you were to, if you were to listen to this with your eyes closed or with no picture, it would sound very weird because there are all kinds of things that are pushed places you would step over there and over here and back there and all this so that was the other wild thing this you're you're the rare audience that will appreciate this is that applause is so hard to edit and mix you have no idea it's it's a very monochromatic kind of sound but the experience as you all know of being in a theater is very dynamic but to recreate that in a mix and to cut the pieces together that give the mixer the range is very, very hard. That was, we spent a lot of time mixing applause because it's a story. There's a story of people's reaction to the film and the film is about how music affects audiences. So that had to land and figuring out a way to do that was, was tricky. Yeah, it was beautiful. The surround, I mean, the Atmos, but I didn't realize yeah. it was Atmos, but the surround. Not Atmos we were, in here at 7.1. It was beautiful surround though. It was just yeah. everywhere. It's enveloping, yeah. Anyone else? Any other questions? Probably have time for one more. Yes. 
You're welcome. Thank you. <laughs> so our, our theatrical run has pretty well reached its conclusion. We're available um, on demand on Apple and um, and Amazon, um, Google, and a couple of other. Uh, and we're on our streaming uh, run starts in December on HBO Max, and HBO Max is providing it in home Atmos, so you can get it there. Anyone else? All right. Congratulations Wonderful. Thanks, on an Thank you all very much for coming. Thank and you thanks for coming. You and Special it. Projects for programming. It's really awesome. Thanks, Ted. Thanks for listening to another DGA Q&A. If you'd like to hear more from our documentary series, check out episode 356, featuring directors Tia Lesson and Emma Pildes discussing their documentary film The Janes with Andy Timoner. The director's cut is available wherever you listen to podcasts. And please share, subscribe, rate, and review. We'd love to hear your feedback, and you can help fellow film buffs find the show. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next time. This podcast is produced by the Directors Guild of America 